For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Right now we are going live and today's guest is the one and only Anthony Pompliano, aka Pomp. He is an investor, the host of the Pomp podcast, and he is one of the biggest Bitcoin bulls around there. How's it going, bro? Good to see you. I'm doing great. I am. Uh, I just realized that we both have uh, four letter words that we go by, but you do yours in all caps, and I need to get on that game. That's oh, yeah. like a, that's a cheat code right there. Zuby in all caps. <laughs> all right. You got to get the two dots as well. People, <laughs> people, people don't know about that. It, make, it makes it look more like my logo. <laughs> how uh, how are you doing? Yeah, man, doing all right, man, doing all right. It's been a been a weird year in so many ways, but um, here we are, post Christmas, last uh, last podcast of 2020. And uh, yeah, happy to have you on this, man. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. I've, I've done your podcast twice now, and this is like, you know, I had, had to get you on mine. So here we are. Let's do it. Awesome, man. So I've done a super brief intro there, but tell the people who may not be familiar with you who you are and what you do. Yeah. So uh, I spent all of my time uh, basically building or investing in uh, technology companies um, and uh, previously was in the U.S. Army, uh, did deployment overseas to Iraq, uh, built and sold two small software companies, then worked at Facebook, uh, Snapchat, and then started investing full time in 2016. And at this point have uh, invested you know, over $100 million in early stage companies uh, and then built a uh, a pretty large, um, I'm calling it a media company or media conglomerate or whatever we want to call it these days. I actually haven't figured out how to talk about it, but it's got a bunch of media properties. And then uh, we've been developing some uh, some software products as well that uh, that we'll be rolling out in 2021. So kind of building stuff and uh, and investing and frankly, just having fun on the internet. That's awesome, man. It sounds like you've already lived three or four lifetimes, but I know you're you're only in your early 30s. So Run us back through some of that, man. Like, tell us a little bit more about how you how you even got started with this. Tell us a little bit about Pomp. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And tell us tell us the story behind the man where you are today. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I've, I grew up in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. I was born in uh, South Florida, but moved when I was I don't know eight nine years old to, uh, to North Carolina. Uh, grew up there. Um, as everyone always says, like I grew up a pretty normal life because that's just like the only life you know. Uh, I have no clue if it was normal or not, but uh, I had four younger brothers. So there's five boys in my family. Uh, every single thing that you're thinking, good and bad, about living in a house with five boys is true. Yeah. Uh, we used to, you know, beat the hell out of each other, uh, but also <laughs> uh, we didn't need to have very many friends outside the house because you basically lived with your best friends, and it was awesome. Um, and uh, I played a bunch of sports in high school, didn't really care about school, um, and went and played football at Bucknell University, and then uh, also was in the army, and that was pretty much 
the story. It was just like, how do we have as much fun as possible and do the least amount of schoolwork as possible? And <laughs> somehow we all survive. So here we are. Awesome, man. I didn't actually know that you were, you were in the army before. What was that like? Uh, yeah. So I signed, uh, when I was 17 years old, which means in the United States, uh, you need your parents to sign off on it, uh, which was a, uh, you know, an interesting experience trying to basically negotiate with your mother. Uh, Hey, will you sign this piece of paper, um, against your, uh, your will basically. Yeah. But, uh, I, I think that it was probably one of the most formative experiences I had. Um, I was able to, uh, one, um, kind of be given a lot of responsibility for such a young age. I deployed when I was 20 years old uh, to Iraq. I was pretty much thrown into an environment where everyone else was uh, either in their late 20s or early 30s. That most of them were married, they had kids, they had a house. You know, kind of all the things that happen in life. Uh, but as a 20 year old kid, like a mortgage is the farthest thing from your mind. You're worried about like, hey, what party can I go to on Friday night? And like, what girls are going to be there? Uh, and will they have beer? Right. <laughs> um, and, and so like being forced to grow up pretty quickly just by being thrown in the environment with like adults uh, was um, in hindsight, a really great experience uh, Two, also just being thrown into a stressful situation uh, of war. Um, again, at the time doesn't necessarily seem super fun, uh, but was a very formative thing of just like, it gave me the one gift that I take out of that time, which is like, hey, we're all going to die. Like that's going to happen. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Everyone else is going to die. And so pretty much when I came back, I was like, all right, well, I didn't die. So like, I won that, you know, round of the video game. Uh, I'm going to go live my life and I'm going to have a blast. I literally don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to go enjoy my life because I know that we're all going to end up at the same place. Um, and so it really shifted my mindset from like uh, money and kind of this like material possession slash consumption world uh, to one of time. And, um, it was a very like weird, uh, path to get there. Um, uh, but that's probably been like the most important thing was just understanding, like you mentioned it, it's like living three lives in, you know, 30 something years. Like, how do you do that 20 more times before I die? Right. And I don't know what that plan is, but uh, I just constantly am looking for new things to learn, new people to meet, uh, new experiences. And so that, that was uh, really valuable. And then I came back and uh, also went through, um, you know, kind of learning all of the things in the military leadership schools and, and all the experiences I had there. Uh, you can take away the lessons, um, kind of the high level takeaways, uh, but you actually can't apply most of the like learnings to the corporate environment. So in the military, it's very like authoritative leadership. Like I'm in charge of you, Zuby, you're a private. I am a sergeant. I outrank you. You do what I say, or like there is punishment, right? Um, when you get in a corporate environment, sure, there's like boss and maybe employee, but there's a lot more influential leadership rather than authoritative leadership going on. So you kind of have to convince people to do things that they might not want to do, but have them buy into the plan. There's no reasoning in the art. It's not like, hey, we're going to go take this hill and like, let me negotiate with you as to why this is the best idea. Like, no, it's just like charge the hill, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I think like that experience was was really formative. And I eventually just realized like I wanted to spend my time uh, in the technology world, um, just drawn to smart people working on hard problems, you know, around innovation and uh, investing was kind of the best way to touch as many things as possible. Um, and so uh, started doing that and absolutely love it. That's awesome, man. How did you, how did you get into the world of investment? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening and thinking, okay, well, to invest, you need uh, you need money, right? You need you need finances. So, how did you even take your first steps into the world of investment? 
So you either need your money or you need somebody else's money. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I found other people's money. Okay. Uh, uh, no, look, look I, I basically said to myself, uh, you know, when I started investing full time, I, I didn't even know how I was going to be good at it. And so it was kind of like, let's walk before we run. Um, I had a partner, Jason Williams, um, and uh, he had done some investing, like kind of some angel investing stuff, but uh, not really managing other people's money, running a fund, all of that. Uh, so we basically said like, let's start out. And we went, we found three or four investments. We said, we like these investments. Um, and a combination of kind of us putting a little bit of money in and also going to investors and saying, Hey, like, look, we found these three or four companies. We think they're good. Here's why do you want to invest? And oh, by the way, if you give us money, like not only will you get exposure to these three or four companies, but like every other deal we do in this fund, you also get exposure to those. And so we kind of just went one by one, uh, and literally raised money, like a hundred thousand dollars or $50,000 at a time from investors, mm -hmm. uh, which in the world of venture capital is like very small check sizes. Um, and we ended up raising about three and a half million dollars, give or take. Uh, we invested in about 60 companies. And in that first fund, we've got two companies that are now worth over a billion dollars where we seed invested. So very wow. early. Uh, and then we've got a third that's worth uh, you know hundreds of millions of dollars and likely will be worth uh, over a billion dollars in the future. And it was one of these things of like, people without the experience, right? And, and if you looked at us on paper, you'd be like, what do these guys know about this stuff? Yeah, yeah. But what we did have was we had a unique perspective on the world. We didn't meet most of the founders in person. So like before this remote stuff was cool, we were basically doing it all via phone calls or video. Uh, two, we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Everyone thought you had to be in Silicon Valley or New York or, or wherever. Uh, this is in 2016, 2017. And then the third thing was we basically had a thesis of like, it doesn't matter what the idea is. We're just looking for the best founder. Because okay. everything's going to change. Like mm -hmm. what they're pitching us is going to change. The competition, the market, the product, like everything's going to change. Just find really good people and, and invest in them. Um, and again, we didn't know if it was the right thing or not, right? But now in hindsight, we're like, wow, like that worked. Uh, and so we've been able to raise more and more funds since then uh, on the same thesis, just with bigger dollars to put to work now. Nice. Awesome. And how did you get into the world of Bitcoin? A lot of people know you for being a, a serious Bitcoin cheerleader, pumping it up during the bull market, during the bear market, anytime Pump is pumping up Bitcoin. He's, he's tweeting about it every single day, day in, day out, years on end. How did you get into the world of Bitcoin? Yeah, we'll talk for a second uh, in a minute about uh, my approach to it. But okay. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, how I got into it, so in 2004, 14, I think it was maybe end of 14, beginning of 15, whenever it was, um, you know, early enough, but not super, super early, like 2012, 2013. I think it was like end of 14, beginning of 15. Uh, mm -hmm. I was working at Facebook and uh, we hired David Marcus. Uh, David Marcus was the former president of PayPal. Uh, he now runs Libra, uh, which is their digital currency. But mm -hmm. when he joined Facebook, he was talking a bunch about Bitcoin uh, and he was coming over to run the messenger team and he was talking about remittance payments and all this stuff. And I wasn't on that team, but I sat you know, like geographically close uh, in the office. And so I heard them talking about all this stuff. And I was like, what the hell are they talking about? Like digital currency, like whatever. So I asked an engineer, I was like, hey man, uh, what's this Bitcoin thing? And he literally said like, quote, it's stupid. Never Googled <laughs> it, never anything. Like I'm the idiot, right? And yeah. by the way, Bitcoin wasn't stupid. Like my approach to learning about it was stupid. Yeah. Uh, so that was my first like thing was just somebody who I thought was super smart, who came from a payment space was like talking about it. Uh, but I didn't really give it 
a lot of seriousness. I didn't go research or anything. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to uh, 2016, um, and a kid that I'd met when he was in high school named JP Barrick, uh, I'd gone into high school and helped with this like almost like mentoring program. Uh, and I met this kid, and it was obvious like that's the kid who like probably isn't doing a lot of schoolwork, but it's going to be super successful in life. Like he's got some scheme always going on. He's yeah. playing with computers. The teachers don't understand what he's doing, but like he always has money and he's got some business or whatever. <laughs> So he comes to me in 2016. I'm living in Raleigh. He's like, hey, man, you should really look at this stuff. And I'm like, again, it's stupid, but whatever. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, look at the mining. And I was like, what is it? And he basically explained it to me. And, and what I took away from it was like, it's a data center, but with better economics and a persistent demand from like a customer's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I understood the data center business. Uh, my father has been in it for you know, 40 years. Uh, and so wasn't an expert at it, but understood how that business worked. And when I saw mining, I was like, oh my God, this is like data centers, but better. And so uh, I took a little bit of personal money. I bought some mining machines uh, and I was like, all right, cool. Like, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I took $50,000. Uh, I literally, saw, I've actually never said this publicly. Uh, I sold my Facebook stock okay. and took a portion of it, went and did this and then put the rest in my bank account. Yeah. And like, you know, there's some uh, some irony in uh, selling Facebook stock for uh, crypto, where the Winkle <laughs> bosses are, you know, rain. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I started mining, and like immediately, I was like, "Oh my god, this is like amazing!" Like literally, it was just like this cash flow machine. Uh, and so I start, I was using GPUs. I was mining Ethereum, um, and this is like by the time we got the actual uh, equipment installed, and like I was paying attention, I had the dashboard and everything. Uh, then it was like Ethereum jumped to like ten dollars, and then it jumped to thirty, and then it was at like a hundred, and this happened in like sixty days, right? Like when it jumped to ten to thirty to a hundred, and so this is now like May two thousand seventeen or so, and I was like, "You're telling me the things that we mined four months ago are now worth like ten x?" Yeah. Oh my god! Like this is unbelievable, and so I pretty much just sat there through two thousand seventeen and tried not to be the idiot in the room. Like I tried to avoid all the scams, all the ICO stuff, like everything that was, didn't feel right to me. I just said like, I don't know enough. So like, I'm just going to stick to the things I understand. And that was mining and Bitcoin. Um, and, And so as it progressed, like I learned more and my conviction deepened. And that's what brought us to this like 2018, 2019 bear market. And I always say, there's a lot of people who are out here spewing nonsense about like, oh, I have a diversified portfolio. I have 20 positions. Like who has 20 good ideas? There's nobody I've ever met that has 20 good ideas. And so I said, there is literally one thing that I have incredibly deep conviction on and it was Bitcoin. And so in, uh, I waited and in December of 2018, I took 50% of my net worth, uh, when the market hit, uh, around $3,000 and I, and I put timing, timing. Okay. Hold on. This, this is important. This is actually a very important. Yeah. 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 So in 2017, everything was just going up and I didn't understand it really well. Right. So it was just like, we're going to just like, like, like what, pick a number, you know, way up there. And like, we'll hit that, you know, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and so as I learned more and more about it, I actually had to swallow my pride and come out and, and publicly uh, it was August of, I think 28th or 24th of 2018. I wrote this letter publicly and I said, Hey, I was wrong. I with 100% believe that Bitcoin is one day going to hit 50,000, a hundred thousand, whatever mm-hmm. I'm off on the timing. We're going down. And Bitcoin had already dropped from like 20,000 to like 6,500. Everyone thought that was the bottom. And I basically said, it's going to hit 3K before it goes to 10K, right? Uh, And so I just waited. 
The other detail that's really important here is we had gone out, me, Jason, and a third partner, Mark Yusko, and we had raised money for a fund, and it was anchored by two U.S. public pensions. And so these public pensions had given us money for crypto and Bitcoin stuff. And we were sitting on the cash and we were investing in companies, but we knew that we were going to put about 15 to 20% into uh, Bitcoin. And we were just sitting, waiting, 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 waiting. Mm. December comes around and I pull the trigger personally first. Uh, and Jason does and a bunch of people around us and we, and we go ahead and we invest a bunch of money. I took 50% of my net worth, put it in. Then we wait and we're trying to be prudent. We're trying not to be overly aggressive with the pension money, but we start investing around $3,800 with the pension money. And we end up putting, um, I think it was like 18% of the fund into Bitcoin with an average purchase price of $5,500. Wow. So okay. the first two US public pensions to invest in Bitcoin in the United States bought Bitcoin at $5,500 and it's now trading at $27,000. Mm -hmm. Like they're chilling. Yeah. And so, <laughs> like, and they're very happy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what's important about that is, when I made that decision, I had pretty deep conviction, right? I always say like, don't listen to what I'm saying. Like, just look at what I'm doing with my money. And so putting 50% in was good. When you get to 2020, I then went from what had been 50%, but had obviously grown a lot to then I took even more money and went to a full 90, I don't know, four, 95% uh, position and put it all in, in wow. March, April, et cetera. And then basically scourged the world. and was like, how do I find more money? Like, like how do I just like, like, <laughs> Like literally, I will like sell organs to buy Bitcoin. Right? Like, like this, like I already had conviction. Like now you guys really screwed up because now yeah. you're going to go print $3 trillion. And like yeah. now I'm going all in. Yeah. And so, you know, here we are. But was, I, was, Sorry to jump in. Was that, was that the motive? Was it when you saw the, the money printing that was going on where you were like, okay, I need to even like double, triple down on this? So before we get to coronavirus and the government intervention, et cetera, okay. the whole thesis was just look out 10 years. You're telling me that less people are going to want Bitcoin than they do today. Like I, I just couldn't see that world. So I had deep conviction. That's why I was so loud about it was I was like, this is my one idea. It's not like I have like 10 ideas and Bitcoin is one of them. It's like, this is the best idea. I'm super convicted. I'm so convicted. Not only am I willing to put 50% of my net worth on it, I'm willing to put my entire public reputation on it. And so like, I'm just going to keep saying this over and over and over again. And you guys are all going to laugh. And then when I'm right, you're going to remember like this dude's literally been telling us like he was going to be right while he was right. He told us it. And then afterwards, yeah. he's going to tell us he was right. right? So in 2019, like over the summer, I think I wrote like in May, June and July, a couple of different letters publicly. And what I said was we are getting towards the end of an economic cycle. I don't know when it ends. But there's a lot of warning signs. So this is, you were starting to see inverted yield curves. You were seeing a lot of CEOs leave their jobs. There was uh, gyrations in uh, the repo markets, just like all these things that suggest like, hey, we're at the late end of a bull market mm -hmm. and something's going to push this over. I didn't know that coronavirus was going to happen, of course, like all that kind of stuff, but something's going to push this market over. And so when that started to happen in uh, March or like February into March, all of a sudden it became very obvious because back in May and June, I had been writing saying, look, whenever the market turns over, the government is addicted to stimulus. They're going to have to step in. They're going to have to put interest rates down. They're going to have to print money. Now, what I didn't perceive was one, how big the like popping of the bubble was going to be in terms of coronavirus, government lockdowns and, and completely shutting down the global economy. And I also didn't understand they were going to cut rates to zero mm -hmm. in two emergency rate cuts and also print trillions of dollars. So they basically did what I thought they were going to do. They just did it on a way bigger scale. And so when I realized like, oh my God, they're going to cut rates to zero and they're going to print trillions of dollars. And this is all going to coincide with this Bitcoin having, 
there's basically going to be a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time that's going to create this like rocket fuel for this thing. And so when I saw that, I just said, you know, screw it. Uh, I'm 32 years old. If I lose everything, I'll make it back. But like, I promise you, I'm not going to sit around and be like, oh, I knew this was going to happen. And then I like didn't take the full, you know, grand slam swing. Uh, and so, you know, again, knock on wood. It's not, we're not out of the woods yet, but uh, looks like uh, that was a pretty good decision so far. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. And, and so, so we'll so see where pump, we go from pump, here. Pump is having a great year. <laughs> no, but dude, that's, uh, that's, that's balls, man. Like that's really literally putting your money where your mouth is. Right. A lot of people talk. A lot of people speculate. A lot of people. Oh, you know, I, I knew Facebook was going to do well, but, you know, I didn't buy any because, oh, I, I knew that was going to happen, but I didn't I didn't put any money on it, whatever. Like I, I really, really admire someone who has that kind of conviction and will lead by example. Right. Rather than just talking is actually willing to put something on their line, not just financially, but also reputation and just be like, look, this is what it is. This is what's going to happen. You cannot believe it now because of where things are right now, but this is where it's going to go. You know, I, I love that. I think, um, and the, a, a trait I massively actually admire in people in general is when they have almost like a delusional level of self-belief either in themselves or in their ideas, all right? Like as as a musician and an entrepreneur and so, someone who does all the things like, I do a lot of things that like I was told I shouldn't do or I can't do or it won't work or whatever. And I, I've always just been like, nope, like I'm dope. Like I'm going to do this. Like it's going to happen. I don't know if it'll be in two years. I don't know if it's in five, but I'm like, yo, like give me, give me some time. Like I'm going to make this thing happen. So but it's betting I, on I greatly yourself. admire it. That, that, yeah. That's all thing. It's betting on yourself. Right. Yeah. And I think that uh, we live in this world where um, people constantly want to preach this idea of like, Zuby, what do you know? Like, you can't be right. Like, look at these other people, like emulate what other people are doing, use their ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's very much um, almost this, like, uh, it's become a virtue signaling type event of like, you can't possibly think you have the answers. Mm -hmm. Whereas my entire life, my parents and everyone around me always told me like, hey, you can do whatever you want. Like you literally can accomplish anything in the world that you want to do if you do the work. That doesn't mean you can just roll out of bed and be right about things or whatever. But if you honestly can do the work, come up with an idea. And again, I'm not talking about come up with 20 good ideas. I'm talking about out of all of the investment ideas in the world, I had one. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to stake everything on that idea because I had such deep conviction on it. But it's because I did the work, right? And interviewed over 400 people on the podcast. I've written about it every day for years. Like, like the amount of work that's gone into this wasn't just like I rolled out of bed and like, hey, here's my idea. Mm -hmm. Now, the piece to this that becomes really interesting is when you're betting on yourself, you also have to be willing and uh, accept the fact that like you could lose, right? Like that's the other thing. Like it's super sexy. Like, oh, let's bet on ourselves. Zuby. like, this is going to be cool. But like- <laughs> Understanding the downside risk was really, yeah. really important. And so when I went into this and at 50% and then, you know, over 90%, I basically said to myself, you know, I had some illiquid investments. I had a little bit of like literally scary little amount of cash. Mm -hmm. uh, my now wife, I told her, don't invest a single thing, like just save as much money as you possibly can. So if I screw this up, like, you know, <laughs> we'll have food. And, yeah. and what I said to myself though, is like, if I blow myself up, I'm 32. I'll make yeah. it all back in space. Like, like I'm not worried about it, but that takes a, again, belief in yourself that like you can make it back. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the people that I admire more than anything in the world, 
all have some belief that if you took them out of the environment they're in today and put themselves somewhere else in the world, even if they don't speak the language, they have no resources, whatever, they will figure out how to be successful in that new environment. Mm -hmm. And that is problem solving, critical thinking, independent thinking, resourcefulness, like all these like intangible things, how you acquire those, there's a bunch of debate, whatever, but these people have a belief in themselves and a belief in those traits and skill sets Mm -hmm. that position themselves to do that. And so if you can do that in another world where you don't speak the language or another country or whatever, imagine what you could do in the country that you live in, where you speak the language, like how do you not take more risk when you have that ability? And so I think that it's just generally people, uh, people operate out of fear. And I've always lived my life, uh, basically by two mottos. One is you're going to die. And two is you told me I couldn't curse. So I won't say the the full phrase, (laughs) (laughs) but basically it is no effing fear. Okay. That's it. Right. And, and the idea is simply what is there to fear? Like whenever people talk to me, right. And they're like, Oh, I'm scared of this. I'm like, and then what? Like, cool. You're yes. You are going to go try something. And if you fail and then what? Mm -hmm. And what you realize is when you go through that exercise, it's like, Oh, it's really not that bad. Like, okay, fine. Cool. You invest a bunch of money and you lose it all. And then what, uh, you go make more money. Like, like, yes, you have to use your skill set. You got to solve somebody's problem. You got to get somebody to pay you for it. Like, you know, it, it is a addressable problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, to bring it kind of all the way back, the world we're living in today, we saw it. They shut down the economy. And there's a lot of people sitting there saying like, hey, what do I do? Yep. As long as you're still alive, you're still in the game. <laughs> you got to go solve the problem, man. Yeah. Right? Like, let, let, like let's go. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's a very interesting thing to see the world that we're in today. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't surprise me whatsoever that people are electing uh, to take their money out of currencies that are being devalued away at very, very scary rates yeah. and put it into something that is transparent, programmatic, and uh, pr- proven to be a pretty good store of value. No doubt, man. I want to get into the, uh, I want to get into Bitcoin a, a little bit more. But before that, I want to know, how did you develop that mindset? Like, where did that mindset come from? Because most 32-year-olds, most people of any age do not have that kind of mindset and approach towards life. Was, do you think it's just how you were hardwired, how you were raised, maybe some of your experiences in the army? What do you think it is that makes Pomp have that that sort of bulletproof mindset there? It's combat, but but not yeah. combat just the war sense. Like, sure, going to combat and having a gun in your hand and bombs and all this stuff, like, sure, that helps. Mm-hmm. But like I went to physical combat with my brothers every day for our entire childhood. I went to intellectual combat with my brothers every single day for our entire childhood. And I constantly surround myself with people who disagree with me, want to debate me, like all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and the, my favorite people in the world to be around are the people who literally I could be toe to toe about to physically fight. We disagree so vehemently. <laughs> and five minutes later, like, hey, man, you want to go grab dinner? Yeah, let's go yeah. do it. And then go joke around. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, it's this separation of like the emotional I hate you or like you're a bad person. No, it's just like we have a difference of opinion on an idea. Let's literally go toe to toe on that idea. And then when it's over, it's over. Like, I think no differently. You're a human being. I'm a human being. Like, let's just go eat dinner. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that like constant um, pursuit of the like uncomfortable uh, like combat and and the challenging and the um, frankly, just like um, 
like nonsense detector. I'm trying not to curse. <laughs> uh, right. Detector, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of just like, like somebody's always there to hold you accountable. If you slip up, somebody's always going to chirp you, et cetera. Like it eventually just hardens you to like, you know what you can do, what you can't do. You very quickly realize like what is fact, what is not fact. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it just gives you the muscle memory, gives you the repetition. And so uh, I tweeted, uh, I think it was yesterday or, or recently, I said, you know, find yourself like an intellectual sparring power uh, partner and then go to war daily. Mm-hmm. And like that, like that is what I did. And it was subconscious. It's not like my parents were like, oh, we're going to have five boys. And then we're going to like literally have them compete every day <laughs> until they are all hardened, you know, intellectual. Like, no, no, it's just like, yeah. that's what happens when you grow up in a family of five boys. But then when you're not in that environment, it's also seeking that out. Like there's a lot of people who they don't want to seek out the discomfort. They want to seek out comfort. They want to seek out the people who agree with them. It feels good to me and Zuby go in a room. Hey man, our view of the world's right. Those <laughs> other fools out there. Right? No, it's like, look, I want to talk to the people that have different views. And I want, I literally want to prove to them that they're wrong. And I want them to prove to me why I'm wrong. Yeah. And so what, what's your, let me ask you a question. What's your yeah, favorite ahead. question to ask people if you're trying to get to know them better? If you couldn't what? fail, what would you do? Okay. What's the best answer someone's ever given you? Um, or like one, some... or one that's like surprised you. Well, I was surprised. I, there was, there was a guy I met who wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to be like a jet, like a, he wanted to be like a fighter pilot. And I can't remember what job he was doing, but it was like something, it was something like, it was really super basic. And I was like, He's oh, the wow. cable man, but he wants to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, there's a lot of people who want to be like, there's a lot of people who want to do artistic stuff. That's interesting. You know, especially me being an artistic person, there's a lot of people who, you know, want to be musicians or authors or, you know, maybe getting to acting or comedy, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, people are crippled by the fear of failure or the fear of thinking maybe they're not. Maybe they're not good enough. Um, whereas my approach, I think, like yours, is kind of like you know, give it a, give it a shot. Like as long as, like I say, you know, if you're if you're still alive, you're still in the game, right? If you if you're taking a risk, which is literally putting yourself in harm's way and like risking your your life, then generally, you know, <laughs> I advise against that unless it's to you know save another life or something like that, you know. But um, if it's something that's simply, especially if you're younger, right, if it's something where it's like, okay, it's a career decision or a financial risk or a business decision, something like that, as long as you've calculated it, right, like don't do it stupidly. But I think as long as you've calculated it, then, you know, go for it. I mean, I've been self-employed for nine years now. I used to work in um, the corporate world. I used to be a management consultant. I left that job in November 2011 to go become an independent rapper which uh, some people understood, some people really did not understand. (laughs) But to me, it was kind of like, look, um, you know, it's at this point, you know, it's just me. As long as I can keep myself alive and keep myself afloat, you know, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is I try, it doesn't work out exactly how I want it to. And okay, I go back into full-time employment or I start a business or whatever. And okay, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties or my, my early thirties or whatever. And okay, you know, but, but then at least I'm not, I'm not living with this whole idea of, oh man, you know, I should have pursued that dream. To me, the, to me, the bigger risk was not, was not taking the risk. Right. And then spending the rest of my life for decades telling people, oh, you know, I I used to be a rapper. I could have I could have been a rapper. I could have done this. I could have done that. And, you know, and just living with that regret. But whereas now it's, you know, it's 
things are still going up, right? It's taken a long time to get to where things are. I'm, I'm still not there yet, but I know, okay, like there's so much cool stuff that's happening. This whole conversation, my whole trip to the USA, like they, everything I'm doing now, had I stayed in that corporate job, none of this would have happened. All these people who know who I am, they wouldn't know who I am. Going on Joe Rogan, that wouldn't have happened. Going on news channels, none of that stuff could have happened if I'd stayed in that position. So, you know, I don't know exactly what the future holds, but I know it was the right move to make. Yeah. And and the part to me that's so interesting hearing you talk about that is it literally is when you are laying on your deathbed, what would you regret? Mm-hmm. And almost making decisions to minimize regret. Right. And, and I think that it's uh, it might be Jeff Bezos um, who has this thing of like when he wants to make a big decision, he fast forwards to when he's 80 and then looks at the decision in reverse and is mm-hmm. like, which path would I should I have taken? Right. And you, what you're describing is very similar. And so to me, it's just uh, when you convert um, the there's a term that I recently heard called time billionaires. And this guy, Graham Duncan, uh, used it uh, on a, uh, a Tim Ferriss podcast. And then uh, a guy, uh, Blake Robbins on Twitter was sharing it. And, and when I heard this, it just blew my mind. It's the whole idea that like, when we talk about billionaires, right? Like Zuby, you want to be a billionaire? You'd be like, hell yeah. We think in dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or euros or whatever. It's like, it, it's a monetary measurement. And we assign great power and influence and resources to people who are quote unquote billionaires, but the, mm-hmm. the currency billionaire. Well, actually, if you were to put, let's say you or me and Warren Buffett, and I said to you, Zuby, I'll give you all of Warren Buffett's money, but you have to trade lives with him. You have to be 90 years old. You wouldn't do it. No you way. wouldn't do it, right? Because no you way. actually value your time and your youth more than you value the billions and billions of dollars because you can't enjoy it, yeah. right? And so- you're actually wealthier than him when you flip from mon- uh, measuring in a currency to a time. Mm. So this idea of time billionaire is uh, a million seconds is 11 days and a billion seconds is 31 years. Mm. So when you start thinking that, okay, if you are 20, you probably have 2 billion seconds left in your life, give okay. or take. Yeah. Right. You've got about 62 years by the time that, you know, medicine, whatever, you'll probably live to be about 100 years old. Mm-hmm. If you are 30 today, you've got at least a billion. If you're 50, you might still have a billion seconds left. Yeah. Right. So you're a time billionaire. But we never think or ascribe power or influence or, or value to time. We only do it to money. Mm-hmm. And so when you pull that into like the investing world, it's like, hey, you can either have billions of dollars or you can have billions of seconds. Which one's more valuable? Mm-hmm. It actually depends on how you use it, right? And so if you don't have billions of dollars, like that's a pretty binary, like either you do or you don't. Yeah, yeah. Everyone who's young, you definitely have billions of seconds. So like use that to your advantage, take the long time horizon when you invest, like blah, 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 whatever. And so to me, like when you start thinking in terms of time or regret, you literally change the decisions you make. You change the activities you do, right? And actually I'm willing to bet that you and I have lived more fulfilled lives because we think in that way compared to people who go every day before the pandemic, they sat in their cubicle. They were kind of in the rat race. Oh, five o'clock. Oh, five Oh one. I can leave work now. They got in their car. They stopped at the grocery store. They went home. They had dinner. They went to sleep. They woke up, drank bad coffee (laughs) and and went to work. Right. And, And so it's like, Again, if that makes you happy, like go do that. But actually what you find is most of those people are not happy. Mm. And so it's like, go live the fulfilled life. Like 
who cares? Mm. And I think that that's just a, uh, it's a view of the world that takes uh, belief in yourself, right? Like when you left your job, you had to believe you could actually go do it yeah. or you wouldn't have left. Yeah. And I don't know if you can teach that to people, if it's a environment thing or what, but I do think that it is probably one of the greatest gifts in life is to understand you are the most powerful person in your world and you can go do whatever you want to do. Sounds super cliche, but the reason why it's a cliche is because literally it is true and yeah. you can go and do it. And because very few people actually do it. I think people talk about it. People talk about it. Follow your passion, chase your dream. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can be what you want to be. Everybody says it, but the percentage of people who actually do it to any real degree is probably under 10%. Of course, ten percent. Yeah, and, and here's the craziest part to me is what it takes to do what you did. Right, you don't have to tell the stories, but I already know on a you know nine ten year journey, whatever it's been, there's been times where you were like, uh oh, like, <laughs> like, dang, did I make the right decision? Yeah. I was getting paid pretty nice doing that management <laughs> consulting stuff. Like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll I'll disclose ooh. something right here. So keep in mind, I left my job in November 2011. Uh, right now, we are in December 2020. Last year was the first year that I made more money self-employed than I used to make in my old job. So for anyone who, because especially being a rapper, people think like, oh, musicians, all musicians just have money falling out the sky or whatever. Last year was the first year. It took me eight years just to get to the level where I was making as much. And this year is the first year where I've made more than I would have done, not just then, but more than I would have done, even if I'd climbed the corporate ladder to what the position I probably would have been in. So that's some real talk. It It, it is incredible when you say it now and people are like, man, that guy's awesome. Like, look what he did. Three years ago, when you were thinking like, "Ooh, could have been make a lot more money," you know, doing this other yeah. thing. like, what what was I like? I get it, right? And so yeah. it's just like, how many people are willing to jump? There's a small number, but even worse than that, are how many people are willing to jump and then get six months in and go mm. back to the job, right? And they're just like, "Oh man, it wasn't a home run right out of the gate." Like, <gasps> like. The Persistence, the consistency, just the relentlessness to keep going. Mm -hmm. It's just not a skill a lot of people have. And by the way, I get it. Like, I'm assuming that at the time when you did this, you didn't have kids, you didn't have a ton of expenses. Like, exactly. like there were, there was yeah. a, an advantage you had over somebody who had three kids, you know, married, mortgage, like whatever. Yeah. And I was very aware of that. But at the same time, there's also plenty of people who figured out how to have their day job and also do their other stuff, right? Like one of my favorite things that people on the internet, when I like tweet and I'm like, oh, I'd like got eight hours of sleep, right? And they're like, oh, well, wait till you have kids. I'm like, hold on a second. Time out for a second. What time did your kids go to sleep last night? They're like nine o'clock. I'm like, what time did you go to sleep? They're like midnight. I'm like, okay. So just so we're clear. <laughs> like, by the way, I'm not a mathematician, but like if you only got five hours of sleep because your kid woke up at five, and your kid got eight hours of sleep and you got five. <laughs> Maybe you were doing something else important, but that just means that it was more important than sleep, right? Yeah, yeah. And you could maybe you didn't need to get eight hours, but you could have gotten seven. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just one of these things where I think that it's in a, we live in a society where it's like very easy to make excuses. It's very easy to just like, oh, I have kids, I have this, I have that, whatever. But like I always laugh because you could sit there. And when you present yourself, you present yourself as Zuby, 
Like that is like, like your identity, your reputation is tied to your name. You own your name. You own your identity. Mm-hmm. But if you have a victim mentality and you said, you know what? I am Zuby. And then you listed off all the that a victim mentality would list off. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, uh, people could say, uh, I'm an immigrant, I'm African-American, but blah, blah. like you just go down the line and you can come up with all these excuses as to like why you have some disadvantage in life. Yep, yep. Right. And like, I went through this exercise one time for me. Right. And, uh, I, I've never said this publicly before, but by the government, I am considered a, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, a disabled combat veteran. Okay. I've never said, I don't, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. By the way, whether you are or you're not, the dudes I know who lost their arms and legs are harder, tougher, smarter, and more successful than the dudes that got two arms and two legs. Yeah. So like, shut up, yeah. right? And I think when you get in this mentality of like, what? why did the world happen to me this way? Mm-hmm. You, you just, you lose all hope. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, like, like it's over. Like you, like you lost because you've, you've succumbed to the pressures of the world. But literally there's a guy who played an interview named Noah Galloway. He literally lost an arm and a leg. The dude was on dancing with the stars. He was on the cover of men's fitness and he's just a badass, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and I saw a picture of him. He was doing a tough mud. I don't, I don't know if you guys have this. Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. YouTube, right. Yeah. And he's literally carrying a log and he's got one arm and one leg. And wow. I'm thinking to myself, Damn, I know some <laughs> losers with two arms and two legs who couldn't do that. And so it's just this mentality of like, I, I really do believe like your mind is your most powerful tool and the mental like toughness you have to have, the, the mental belief you have to have in yourself for you to quit your job and go after the opportunity you went after. It didn't matter how long, if it took you 20 years, you were still going to do it. Oh yeah, did, for real. Right. And now you're sitting there and you're like, ha ha ha, look at this. I make more money now. And look how it, like, <laughs> like now it sounds awesome, but people yeah. forget like that journey. The journey was a grind. I need to, I need to one day just do like a whole podcast on like some of the absolute nonsense, <laughs> especially in the music world, man, in, in music industry. It's, it's man, people are. Somebody should create a podcast that's just like, let me tell you about the time this sucked and literally just go through people's (laughs) lives and be like, let me tell you about all the things I remember of like, uh, what is it? uh, The Rock, right? He's Mm -hmm. got like the seven bucks production and this whole story of like, he remembers one point that he had $7 in his pocket and he was like, I'm broke now, but I'm not going to be broke forever. Yeah. Every successful person I know has like that one or two moments where they're just like, yo, that was rock. Like that was bad. Right. I got through it, but that was bad. And I, I think that that is, uh, it's just a sign like those people are going to be successful. It didn't matter what you threw at them. They were going to figure it out. And it's a mentality thing. For real, man. So there's going to be some people who are listening right now who are like, I want to learn about Bitcoin. I want to learn about Bitcoin. So being the Bitcoin bull that you are, for someone who is on the fence, who has heard about it, they're seeing it, whatever. Can you can you give a quick summary of the value proposition of Bitcoin in your eyes and also what you think its future potential is. Yeah. So look, the easy thing is uh, if you take US dollars right here in the United States, uh, they're guaranteed to lose purchasing power. And all purchasing power means is uh, if I have $100 today, I can go to the grocery store and I can buy, let's say, five loaves of bread. I'll just make things up, right? Uh, If I wait three years and I go back with that same $100, I will not be able to buy five loaves of bread. Now I'll only be able to buy four. 
which literally means that the dollars became less valuable because it can buy less goods, right? So the purchasing power went down. The reason that happens is because what they are doing, they being the government and the Federal Reserve, is they are devaluing the currency. The reason, so it's systematic. It is a feature of the system. They're intentionally making the dollars worth less all the time. The reason why they're doing that is because they want to incentivize you financially to get rid of the dollars. They do not want you just to hold the dollars in your bank account. So by devaluing it, if you know that they're doing this, what happens is you will either go buy things, so you'll spend money, or you will invest money. Mm -hmm. So you'll get out of the dollar, you'll get into other things. Well, that sounds like a great plan to get people to do commerce and economic activity. The problem is 50% of Americans don't know that happens. There's 50% of people in the United States that do not understand that. Because what do they do? They literally just take all the money and they put it in their bank account. They just leave it there. Mm-hmm. They have no investable assets. They've got no retirement. They got no anything. They just live paycheck to paycheck with all of their money in the bank. Mm-hmm. So those people think that they're saving money. I put $100. I put $100. I put $100. Well, they come back in five years and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Like I thought that I was saving up to buy this house or buy this thing. But now I don't have enough money because now that thing is more expensive than it was when I first started saving because mm-hmm. the dollar's being devalued. So guess what? The rich people, the top 50%, they know this. That's why they all invest the money. And that's why they keep getting richer, right? It's because they buy assets that go up in value because the dollar's being devalued. So that's how the US dollar works. Bitcoin is 180% opposite. There's an unlimited number of supply of dollars. There is a completely artificially limited number of Bitcoin, meaning that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So far, there's about 18 and a half million out in the supply. And Bitcoin over a long period of time will continue to appreciate in US dollars because the purchasing power of Bitcoin is getting more and more valuable, right? It's gaining purchasing power. So you can think of this like a house. Why do people always say buy real estate? It always goes up over long periods of time. Well, it's because the dollars are being devalued. So the way that Bitcoin's value is measured today is it is Bitcoin over the dollar, right? Or the dollar over Bitcoin, depending on, on, on how you look at it. The dollar's being devalued and Bitcoin's purchasing power is going up. If you've ever taken an economics 101 course, there is supply and demand. There's a fixed supply. If demand increases, the only way for that to happen is the price has to go up in US dollar terms. And so that's what's happening right now is you have a bunch of Bitcoin holders who do not want to sell Bitcoin. They believe that Bitcoin is the best store of value. It is going to protect their wealth better than anything on the planet. It is a um, a, a secure, scientific, computer-engineered store of value. And there's never been anything like this in the world. And they put their wealth in and they hold that Bitcoin. But now all these institutions are showing up. The fidelities, the mass mutuals, the public pensions. They say, wait a minute, we would like some of your Bitcoin. And the Bitcoiners are like, I'm not selling. (laughs) I'm not selling. You can't buy my Bitcoin. And the institutions say, okay, well, that's nice that you're saying that at $19,000 Bitcoin. What if I pay you $20,000? And the Bitcoiners say, I'm not selling my Bitcoin. (laughs) And then the institutions say, well, what about at $21,000, $28,000. And eventually somebody goes, okay, I'll sell my Bitcoin for $28,000. But the problem is that there's so much demand. There's so many institutions now coming to the table saying like, I want Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin. And there's so few people selling. Mm -hmm. 
that the bids just keep going up and up and up and up. And so over some period of time, this is going to continue to uh, uh, aggressively appreciate in price. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it tops out, but I I personally believe it'll be much higher than where it is today. And then there will be a crash. Like at some point we will go from Bitcoin is undervalued Mm -hmm. to it's overvalued. There'll be Mm -hmm. another crash and then we'll go through this cycle again. What a lot of people are doing is they're all speculating on what is the low? What is the high? How fast does it happen? They're all betting, all this kind of stuff, just like the stock market. Yep. But the hardcore Bitcoiners, they're not selling their Bitcoin. Yep. They are not going to sell. And what that ultimately does is the more people who say, I have acquired Bitcoin and I am going to hold it and I am not going to sell it. I don't care what price you offer it to me. Mm-hmm. It makes Bitcoin more valuable over time because it is proving the thesis that is a store of value. And so you now have two systems. You've got dollars and you've got Bitcoin. One is infinite amount. The other is a limited amount. And you get a choice. You can put 100% of your money in dollars. You can put 100% of your money in Bitcoin or anywhere in between as a split. Mm -hmm. I, in 2018, decided to go Mm 50-50. Then I went like 95-5, right? (laughs) (laughs) But there's a lot of people who say, you know what? I actually don't really understand this Bitcoin thing. Sure. And uh, I'm going to say 99 in dollars and 1% in Bitcoin. Sure. That's fine too. Like, like just figure out what you're comfortable with, but just understand there's two systems. And if you're just holding dollars, like that's not going to be a good thing because I think it's like 22 or 23% of all US dollars in circulation have been printed in the last 12 months. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's like, insane. Like they are literally just printing and printing and printing and printing more. And they're like, hold on, let us take a water break. Okay, let's print more money, more wow. money, more money. And, and it's to, like, to be clear, to be clear, when money. when you say printing, you're not necessarily just talking about physically printing. You're talking about like digital, digital dollars. Yeah. So well, for those yeah. that don't know this, uh, if Zuby and I look at our bank accounts and I'm like, eh, I need more money. I got to go work for my money. You got to go work for your money, right? Like we got to go do something. So somebody gives us money for a good or a service. The government can go in their bank account and be like, (laughs) we need more. And they literally just edit the number. Like they just click and they're like, okay, let's add a zero. Or like, let's go from like 2 trillion to 4 trillion. And they just change the number. Yeah. What world are we living in? And so what ends up happening is like this charade works for a while. Get 50% of Americans or more don't even know this is going on, blah, 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 whatever. But at some point, you can't keep doing it. And what happened earlier this year is they literally did this for $3 trillion. They ran a $3 trillion marketing campaign for this whole new world. Uh, And you saw every institution wake up to it. Capital started to shift. And I think that we're just at the kind of beginning of a massive capital shift where people are going to say, whoa, I don't want to play this game anymore. Mm -hmm. And so from the US dollar system, I think they got a lot of challenges. I've talked to a bunch of people on that side in terms of like what they should do to try to slow down the bleeding and address the problems, whatever. I don't think they're going to do it. It's fine, whatever, that's their choice. Uh, But that's ultimately like what's happening right now is just people are realizing like this US dollar inflationary system where we just like make up money as we go and literally can edit bank accounts and stuff like that's a wild world that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so they look for alternatives and, you know, Bitcoin gold, like th- it's not just Bitcoin, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a bunch of other things that people can look at and it really depends on your risk profile and, and kind of how comfortable you are with the different assets. Sure. But that, that's what's happening right now. No doubt, man. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I know pe- people, people love price predictions, of course, but do you have, are you, are you, are you willing to, are you willing to give a public, 
price prediction for where you think Bitcoin is going to go, say, say within the next, oh, next 12 two years. Well, okay, 12, 12 okay, okay, do 12 months, do 12 months. So uh, I haven't changed this from okay. uh, after I said it's going to go to three and then it's going to go back to 10. That happened. Then everyone was like, well, what happens next? And I was like, yeah. well, I don't know. <laughs> like, let me go think about it. <laughs> Went and thought about it. And I said, uh, this is maybe like 2019. Uh, I said, by the end of 2021, it'll hit $100,000, mm-hmm. right? Now, when I wrote it, I literally had people who were like, not quite death threats, but pretty dang close. Like, like, <laughs> like pretty close. Yeah, like yeah. to the point where if like I misread this a little bit, like that's a death threat type thing. Yeah, yeah. And they were just like, you're an idiot. Okay. And I was like, okay. Uh, so it was not a popular idea, like whatever. Now, fast forward, you know, 18 months, I'm like the most conservative guy in the room. There's people out here, <laughs> 300. I saw somebody 500. Like, again, I'm just going to stick with 100K. We're about, okay. you know, 25, 30% of the way there. Okay. I feel good that we're going to hit that. I'm going to stay there. Uh, but we're on, you know. we're on the same page there. I, um, it's funny because I've, I've got a WhatsApp. I've got a WhatsApp chat group with some of my university friends. Okay. And uh, cause everyone, you know, people got hype around, you know, in the 20, 2017 crypto peak, right? People started getting interested, started getting hype or whatever. And then of course there was the whole bear market. And I was the hardcore one who was like researching every day and sticking to my guns. I have a, I have a message on there from I think February, 2018, from February, 2018, predicting hundred thousand by end of 2021. Ooh. I think you're going to be right so, there, my friend. And, 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 it, and it's in the WhatsApp chat. So it's, it's saved there. So I, I have evidence that I, that I said this. And that's, that's obviously when the market was bleeding out as well. <laughs> so everyone was like, because like, really my, my friends were like, dude, I hope you sold. Like, I hope you sold. I'm like, I haven't sold anything. I'm buying more. They're like, yeah. dude, you are insane. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, come back to me in five years, guys. Come back to me. <laughs> we will see if, if, I have, if I have to put my hands up and be like, you know what? <laughs> like, I screwed up. I'll. I'll do it. You know, I did it. I did it with my Trump bet. I put I put a bet on Trump winning the election. You know, maybe who knows? Maybe that maybe that could still happen. But <laughs> but uh, you know, on that say, one, I put my hands up. I was like, okay, I didn't win that one, but we'll see. I, I was going to ask you, do you think he won? But let, we don't need to go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, no, but uh, uh, here's what I will say: is uh, the one thing if, if people are listening to this and uh, you were into Bitcoin, you believed in Bitcoin, you had friends who didn't. And those friends are now coming back to you being like, hey, maybe you were right about this Bitcoin thing. Like, can you help me? Do not be mean to them. I'm saying mean because I can't say another word. Uh, (laughs) Do not mock them. Do not ridicule them. Do not do all this stuff. Like help them, educate them, get them up to speed. Understand that like every single person, myself included and everybody else at some point didn't believe in it, didn't understand it. Like what, like this is now the time to show the compassion to help other people rather than be like, ha ha ha, you're an idiot. You were wrong. Like whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if they're really good friends, you can say it one time. Like, <laughs> but after that, then help them. Right. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but it's like the people who are fair game are the people who still are bears. Knock yourself out, like yeah. go ham, whatever. <laughs> but the people who are like consciously coming and saying like, Hey, I think I was wrong. Help me. Like, yeah, yeah. please help them. No doubt, man, bro. i want to be conscious of your time. Um, before we jump off this, where can people find you online? Uh, I have this Twitter account. Uh, at some point, I'm going to stop tweeting, but that's probably not anywhere in the foreseeable future. One day, I'm just going to just like Babe Ruth and just walk off and be like, see ya. <laughs> uh, but Twitter's probably the best place to uh, define me. It's just 
at a Pompliano. Some guy awesome. in Texas, man, has got at Pomp, and he blocked me. He emailed me once. He was like, "Yo, give me 10k," and you like, no. I'm like, kick, like kick rocks, dude. There's like a man. DJ in radio. I'm gonna like call into the radio show one day and be like, so "Yo, I know who you are. I know you got this. You don't use it. Give it to me." <laughs> awesome, Pomp, man. So good to have you on the show, man. We'll we'll definitely have you back on again in the future. And um, yeah, hopefully for everyone listening, whether you're already into Bitcoin or investing or you're thinking about it, I hope this has been valuable for you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And Pomp, man, thanks once again for coming on the show, bro. Really appreciate it. Good man, Zuby. Appreciate it. Nice, man. God bless. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.